you have your Bible this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're continuing uh, a series we started last week called Twisted, looking at the most commonly misused verses in the Bible. And we talked about a various uh, different reasons why verses might get twisted or, or misapplied to people's lives last week. And, and one of the ones we kind of hit on was, was taken out of context. Sometimes people will read a passage of Scripture, really like what it has to say, and completely ignore the verses immediately before or immediately after that. I think this can best be illustrated this way. Did you know, and yes, your preacher is preaching this as absolute truth this morning, did you know that the Bible says there is no God? I can even give you a reference here in just a moment. Specifically, the phrase is in the Bible, there is no God. Now, if that has completely changed your theology this morning, you can add it to your list of twisted verses. Psalm 14, verse 1, write it down, you can look it up. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. How easy you can leave something out and completely change the meaning. It's important as we look at verses anywhere in Scripture that we don't pull out what, what maybe some people call coffee cup verses. They're really good and really powerful verses that slapped on coffee mugs everywhere, but taken out of context, lose their power and lose their meaning. Certainly, standalone verses are, are wonderful and should be memorized and even applauded, but, but we have to be careful to understand fully what they mean. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning when we look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. This morning's message is entitled, Where Two or More Are Gathered. And we're going to look at a very popular Christian phrase based on a Bible verse that we misapply all the time. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 says this, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Normally when someone says that, standing up on stage, you get a nice hearty, Amen, right? Where two or three are gathered, God's presence is there. And this verse, if you look at the previous verse in context, maybe even adds to some confusion. Just look at verse 19 with me. Okay, so look at the verse before, right? We're putting this in context. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So if you just take these two verses and you read them, these verses say if there are two people who can agree in God's name, God will give them what they ask. So we have, I don't know how many are here this morning, more than two. I need your help with something. I really feel the Lord needs to give us a fully funded mission trip. He's providing all the finances, all the materials for our entire church. And we need to, to agree on this this morning, that in 2020, the Lord would give us a fully funded mission trip, everyone in the church to Hawaii in 2020. Can we agree on that? So I, there's, I got an amen. This isn't a business meeting. I don't even need a second, but I heard one, right? Is that what this verse is telling us? If we would just all get together and want the same thing in the Lord's name, then we'll receive it. Does it work that way? Of course we know not. And yet we apply this verse many times to that there's two or three of us that are gathered together, and so God obviously has a specific plan and purpose and, and a unity, and, and, and the Lord's presence is here. I want to ask you a question. If you are genuinely seeking the Lord at home on a Tuesday morning, 
reading the word of God, spending time in, in quiet time, reflection, and prayer, is God present with you? There's only one of you. Okay, what, what, if there are, what if there are people who are in remote places and unable to, to get to church? Now, this doesn't apply to people who, who aren't coming to church that can, but specifically people who are unable, and they're seeking the Lord on their own. Nobody else is a believer. And they get together with themselves and their Bible and whatever music they can come up with, and worship is the Lord's presence with that one person there. Is there something magical that happens when two people stand next to each other and start praying, like somehow the Lord's presence is greater there? Is that true? Is there anywhere where God is not? No. So so what context do we normally hear this verse? If two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. By the way, I, I want to be very clear this morning. It is a very true statement that when we stand up on this stage behind this pulpit and we pronounce that there are two or three gathered in the name of Christ, that God's presence is here, that is a true statement. That is not an unbiblical statement. That's just not what this verse means. (laughs) What is the context? What does this verse mean when we say, if two or three are gathered in my name? Is, Is there a specific prayer meeting going on in Matthew chapter 18? Is it, is it a worship service? Is it a, a gathering of people listening to Jesus teach? What, what is the context going on that Jesus is talking about where two or three are gathered in my name and if they ask anything in my name, what are we looking at here? What may surprise you to know that this verse is not about a prayer meeting. It's not about a worship service. It's not about a, a religious gathering whatsoever. This verse is actually about church discipline. We're going to look at the the verses surrounding it here in just a minute. But every time we stand up and say, we're two or three are gathered in my name, the Lord is there, I'm thinking, oh great, who are we voting out of the church today, you know? Let's look at what uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20 say. Read this with me. If your brother sins against you, there's the offense. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's our number that we're starting to see where this comes from. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. By the way, there's another good twisted verse that a lot of people use. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, what has this anything been qualified for in the context? Correction, right? If two of you in the Lord's name agree on God's word and needing for correction, if you agree and you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. God's presence is with you when you stand on his word. For where two or three are gathered in my name, in the context of addressing a specific problem, an unrepentant sin, there you have God's blessing. He is among you. This parable, this passage, is not just about worship services. This passage is really about how we are to deal with unrepentant sin and church discipline. 
Maybe you saw the title this morning and, and you opened up your bulletin and you thought this is going to be a fun, uplifting sermon. And now I've started talking about church discipline and you're going, I wish I would have slept in on this rainy Sunday morning. Um, we are going to talk about what church discipline looks like this morning. But again, I think we, we twist that as well, don't we? But we like to make church discipline about our comfort and how we feel. And instead, church discipline is not primarily about punishment. Actually, we're going to find later on, it's not about punishment at all. But look at context of what Jesus is talking about again. If we just zoom out even more, what are the verses before Matthew 18, 15 talking about? Well, it's talking about a redeemed sheep. (laughs) Jesus says if a shepherd loses one sheep out of a hundred, he's going to abandon the 99 and seek after to claim and redeem the one. It's a picture of redemption. It's a picture of forgiveness. You look at the verses immediately following. It's it's a parable about a a man who is is not forgiving. And Jesus condemns him, right? Right smack dab in the middle, Jesus wants to give us a picture of what it looks like to redeem a brother or a sister in Christ. So this passage is about church discipline, but it's really also about redemption. It's a story that you and I have experienced. It's... It's a passage about how Christ desires to bring forgiveness and mercy and grace and how he wants to use his people, the church, to draw others to him. So we're going to look at what Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20 teach us about correction and discipline and what God's purpose is in that this morning. If you have your your bulletin, you can take notes, fill in the blanks. I'll I'll be sharing some things with you uh, about what Matthew 18 is teaching us. I'll also let you know that our church's official standing, uh, voted on and approved on how we handle discipline and correction within the church is based exactly off of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. It's lined out word for word or thought for thought on how we handle conflict within the church. And so this is really an application of us and what we do. The first thing we have to understand that I think we don't like to think about is that a Christian's unrepentant sin is a big deal. It's funny how big a deal sin can be to some people when it's someone else's sin. We really don't like that the culture teaches this or the culture pushes that. We really don't like that lost people act lost. But within the church, oh, when there's sin within the church, let's push that under the rug. We spend a lot of time focused on why a lost world doesn't act Christian, that we stop asking ourselves, why is it sometimes that a Christian world acts lost? God is actually far more concerned with the behavior of his children than he is with the behavior of those who aren't his children. Sure, he wants to see redemption in everyone. He wants to see forgiveness applied to all people. And everyone who believes on the name of Jesus Christ can receive redemption. But we as Christians like to to put a feather in our hat. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. We have our, our golden ticket to get us into heaven. And now it's not that big a deal if we mess up. I specifically use the word unrepentant sin here because I, I want you to know if perfection was the standard, all of us have failed. This specifically is not talking about us making mistakes or sinning and asking forgiveness and moving on. This passage is dealing with people, you and I, 
who often delve into sin and want to turn a blind eye towards it. We don't want repentance. We don't want forgiveness. We don't want things to change in our lives. We're happy with the way things are. At First Baptist Church, there is never a witch hunt for people who sin. If so, you would have to fire me as pastor today (laughs) and yesterday and the day before and tomorrow. All of us will sin. Instead, we have to look at an unrepentant sin. Someone who refuses to acknowledge that they're doing anything wrong as a a not small deal, but a a big, important deal. We read in verse 17 the ultimate conclusion of this discipline. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. These lose some, some meaning for us in our modern times. But a Gentile and a tax collector would have been synonymous of those people who you push to the outside. They're no longer welcome in the inner circle. This is not saying it's okay to push Gentiles and tax collectors out. Jesus hung out a lot with Gentiles and tax collectors. Instead, it's a reminder to the people. It's supposed to strike fear in the people that if you are not living according to the Word of God and you refuse to even try that you are outside the family of God. You're to be treated as if you're not a part of God's kingdom. Paul kind of elaborates on this to to tell us why sin is such a big deal. Why even small things uh, make a big impact. In 1 Corinthians 5.16, he's he's giving an illustration about sin. There's one man in the Corinthian church who has a, a big sin, but the rest of the church is kind of treating it as if it's no big deal. This man's big sin is an adulterous and incestuous relationship that Paul is calling out, and the rest of the church is going, it's just one man. The rest of us are fine. Sin is no big deal because he'll deal with that. We don't have to deal with that. Paul uses this illustration in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, I'm not a baker. I don't know what leaven is, other than in a biblical point of view, but... A pinch of leaven makes the bread rise. It doesn't take a lot of leaven. It doesn't take enough to to match the rest of your ingredients. Just a a small drop of leaven will completely change the nature, the fabric, and even the chemistry of your loaf of bread. Paul says this is what sin does. It just takes a pinch. It just takes a small amount. It doesn't take the entire church. It just takes an individual refusing to repent to affect the entire chemistry and nature of the church. Can we acknowledge this morning that when we as Christians will not confess our own sins and strive to live according to God's word, it affects our entire church family. Just a a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin affects the whole congregation. Uh, As we look at what a big deal sin is, uh, we realize how important it is and why Jesus says we we must call it out. Again, not every sin in every church should be called out. But ongoing unrepentant sin certainly should because it's a big deal. So how do we do that? Well, the quickest way that I know of to get the word out to everybody about someone's sin to make sure they never do it again is to post it on Facebook. And I think that's what Jesus is going to tell us here in a few verses. If we would just put it as a public status, then everyone would know. Truth is, we, we do this. 
but not with names. We're sneakier than that, right? Because we know that's wrong. So we just start our status with, to the person who, and then we list their sin, how dare you, right? Or to the, the lady in Walmart who, I see that one a lot. You know, I think I'm guilty of it. We take it as public as we can, as quick as we can, right? That's not what Jesus tells us to do. As a matter of fact, he tells us that correction should be handled in the most private way possible. Because our mindset is make it public, embarrass them, and maybe they'll change. Jesus says, keep it private, love them, and I will change them. Correction is handled in the most private way possible. The, the truth is, instead of broadcasting it, we should gasp, have a conversation with that person, right? Now look at verse 15 as he starts the process. If your brother sins against you, some translation have that against you, others do not. I, I kind of like reading it as against you because this is, if someone's doing something to you, instead of going and blabbing your mouth, tell him his fault. Go talk to the person. Pull them aside and say, hey, you know, we've had a good relationship in the past. What's going on here? Hey, can, we, can we talk through this a little bit? Can, can I just share with you how you've hurt me and, and maybe, maybe find a way that we can get past this? Keep it one-on-one or, or at least as private as possible. Instead of going and saying, I can't believe so-and-so did such-and-such. Why don't you just go and, and tell them that this is where we need to get things right. This is a a one-on-one conversation. If a brother sins against you, or maybe your translation says, if your brother sins, has ongoing, unrepentant sin, go and talk to them secretly. Don't go to prayer meeting and say, we need to pray for so-and-so. You should hear the sin that they committed on Friday night, and let me share it with you. Let's pray for him publicly. Instead, go and talk one-on-one. Verse 16, it expands a little bit, but not much. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This, again, is still a very small and private matter. By the way, I think we should be very careful. If we go to a brother or a sister one-on-one and and they don't want to to change from the way that they're living, if they don't want to, to repent of their sin, we must be very careful who we go and call with us. I'm not going to grab the person I know is the church gossip to have them go with me and lead and talk to someone about their sin. I'm going to go to some people I trust and know who are grounded in the word of God because that's really our only source of correction. This isn't an opinion of, of I think and you think. This is, hey, maybe I'm wrong in this. Let me get two or three people involved. This is what I'm reading in scripture and, and this is where I want to see my brother and sister get things right. Am I, am I right in this? And then we have two or three witnesses to say, you know what, we're reading the word of God together not going and blabbing it. We're just talking privately and we're sharing it with this person. This is what God's word says. This is how God wants you to live. This is completely opposite of how we handle things. The the opposite of keeping it private is, is what plagues so many churches. It's gossip, right? It's, did you hear that? Can we get the word out to as many people as we can? I tell you, nothing kills the spirit and unity of a church quicker than when we start talking and gossiping. Gossip isn't always lies. Sometimes gossip is truth. But it's truth that needs to be kept private. It's truth that needs to be addressed in a a small group. 
It's truth that needs to be confronted on a a micro level, not a public macro level. Jesus says, my goal is not to shame this person. Jesus says, my goal is that, that we would claim them like I did the sheep just a few minutes ago. That we would forgive them. That we would welcome them back into the family. That that they would live the life according to God's word that I created them to live. And there are times that as you talk to them one-on-one, show them clearly in God's word, not my opinion, but God's word, they refuse to listen. And two or three others say, listen, we're studying the word of God together too and we don't want to see you go down this path. And we, we want to see you repent and get back in line with God's word. They refuse again, and and there are times that Jesus says in verse 17, it becomes fairly public. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. By the way, never in the history of any church I've ever pastored, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you, never in the future of any church I will pastor, will someone stand up on Sunday morning and read a list of sins anyone is committing. That's not what it means by tell the church. It's not saying if you will come forward on a Sunday morning and broadcast, live stream, tweet about this person's sin, maybe it'll get the word out. No, as I read this, when it says tell it to the church, I really believe it means go to the the church leaders who are able to to do something about this correction. Notice the, the ultimate sad ending of an unrepentant believer is that you would put them outside as a Gentile and a tax collector. And, and the ultimate end of church discipline where a person does not repent is, is having to remove them from membership of the church. It's a sad, mournful time. It doesn't have to be broadcast on a Sunday morning. Instead, as we read this, I think tell it to the church is come to the deacon body who are responsible for keeping the membership list and making sure that, that those who have joined are, are, are on record and, and those who have moved are not. And, and go talk to the deacons and let them pray and talk to the person about it as well. In the worst case scenario, they may go and say, we have no choice but to, to ask you to, to be removed from our church list. Even this doesn't have to be an overly public matter. This isn't shaming This is with broken hearts saying, I wish you would come to the Lord. I've actually never gotten this far in any church discipline I've ever had as a pastor. Honestly, what happens more times than not when this is done correctly, if you go to a believer and you share what the Word of God says, more often than not, either on that one-on-one or that two or three gathering, someone goes, you know what, guys, I've messed up. And I need your help in overcoming this. I'm still going to struggle, but will you be accountability and and help me get through it? And it stays in that small group and Christian growth occurs and it's a beautiful thing, a picture of repentance. Occasionally someone refuses to repent and quite honestly, I've never gotten to take it to the church because sadly, a lot of times that person removes themselves and it breaks my heart every time that happens. I've sent letters, made phone calls, visits. I've reached out to people and and beg them, would you just come back? We'd love to talk to you. And there are sadly some times that they just refuse. The goal is not punishment. It's not banishment. It's not shame. It's to keep it small and private. It's not to gossip. It's to encourage not to tear down. Really, this passage in Matthew 18 is one of the best passages I know to slander the sin of gossip. Keep it to yourself. Talk to a person individually. Love them. Don't shame them. 
Go and point to them in God's Word as a believer in Christ what we should be doing on a very personal and private basis. Now, why do we talk about church discipline on, on a Sunday morning? Why do we talk about correction and, and redemption? Or, or why are we talking about the sin of people within the church? I think the reason why, I, quite honestly, I get excited about a passage like this is not because I'm sadistic, but because discipline is a sign of God's grace. Realize that Jesus, in this context, is not trying to punish anyone. This church discipline process is not punishment. Since for the believer, Christ has already received the full punishment for our sins on the cross. We have no right to punish anyone. Christ has taken that from the believer. Instead, the goal is to bring someone back to grace and redemption and help them live their life according to the Word of God. I love in verse 15, when you go to him one-on-one, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is a sign of God's grace. This is the picture of, I was heading the wrong direction, and someone loved me enough to tell me what God's Word says, and you've gained me back. This is the picture in the Old Testament of David in his adulterous and murderous sin, having his friend Nathan come alongside and say, this is the sin you committed. David tearing his robes, covering himself in in ashes and repenting. saying, I I can't believe I've fallen away. Really, discipline is a way that we demonstrate God's goodness and graciousness to us to bring us back into a right relationship with Him. We read in our welcome this morning the the previous passage of the the sheep. And I I love this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, 12 through 14. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? Can I tell you, there's some discipline that happens when he finds that sheep. There's some correction, right? There's some training of that animal. You cannot leave. There's danger out there. In verse 13, And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. This is a picture of God saying, praise the Lord that the sheep has returned. Verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This correction and discipline is a sign that God's desire is to save. Peter always opens his mouth and speaks inappropriate things that Jesus has to correct, and he does that after this church discipline passage. Peter wants to know, how much of this correction do we need? How much of of this winning back should we have? When do we throw up our hands and say, enough is enough? And so he asks, following this passage in verses 21 and 22, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I don't feel special and religious. He gives a nice biblical number. How about seven times, God? That's a perfect number. If I forgive someone seven times, I've done it perfectly, and the eighth time, that's on them, right? Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Other passages at other times, we hear Jesus say 70 times, seven times. In other words, whatever number you have in mind, it's more. However much forgiveness you think you should give, give more. Our own forgiveness comes 
Not because we've earned anything or done anything. We've rebelled seven times and 77 times and 70 times seven times and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus leaves the 99 sheep, finds us, and brings us back with correction. Over and over and over again, he opens up his word and says, this is what I have for you. Will you return? Over and over and over again, he looks at my life and he says, you've messed it up, but I've got something so much better for you. In so doing, we reflect that, right? We stand before our brothers and sisters in Christ and we say, I know you've hurt me before. Listen, God has something so much better for you. There's redemption to be found. There's grace in the discipline. Yes, the discipline of God and the discipline of His church is a sign of God's goodness to us, His graciousness to us, and His giving us of of His redemption. As we wrap up this morning and we start to think about this verse where two or more are gathered, can we properly apply this morning, this verse? Can we step back and say there are two or three or more gathered in the name of Christ this morning to proclaim the redemption that God has for us? Maybe this morning you're sitting here feeling alone, abandoned, sinful, screwed up. This morning... I can say with authority of the two or three or more gathered in His name. God has a perfect plan of redemption meant for you. God's desire is to save you out of that sin. God's desire is that you would turn to Him even in the midst of the discipline so that He can bring you into the family of God. This morning, I can say authoritatively based on Matthew 18 through 20. And if I can get just one more to amen me, then we'll know there's at least two of us. Amen? Amen. That this morning, if you'll confess your sins, if you'll ask for forgiveness, if you'll trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, He will give you redemption and call you into His family. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have been given through you the authority to stand on your word and preach a message of repentance, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. Lord, we preach a message of discipline because it brings about your goodness and your grace. Father, for for those in here this morning who are wondering if that redemption means them, Lord, open their eyes and let them see that that your will, your desire is not that anyone would perish, but that they would put their faith and trust in you. Father, many of us have been sin against. Lord, we feel bitter and, and hurt. Lord, we pray that as we read through Matthew 18, we would be reminded that, that you've given a path to redemption. Lord, let us take those steps privately to go and correct our brother and our sister in Christ. Seek their forgiveness, and Lord, seek for them to to seek forgiveness from us as well. Lord, we confess to you our own sin, and and we realize that our sin is a great and, and big deal that keeps us from having a right relationship with you. Lord, correct us through your word and through the testimony of others. Lord, we ask this, two or three or more of us this morning, in your name. Amen.